Hey, Reality Family, welcome once again to our online gathering as we continue to study the Gospel of Mark together. Before we get into the passages we're going to be looking at today, I want to remind us of the two things that we've, the two concepts that we've talked about in the last uh, two sermons, because they're important building blocks for us to understand what's going on in the stories today and, and, and meet the Jesus that Mark is putting in front of us. So the first concept uh, that we talked about is that we all bring baggage and um, expectations and assumptions to the Jesus that we're about to meet, to the Gospels, to Jesus, to King and Kingdom. And it's okay that we have those. All of us have them. They're natural. Whether we're Christians or not, we all have this kind of baggage. Some of it might be right. Some of it might not be. And the Gospel of, of Mark is encouraging us to examine those, to take them out, to examine them, and then to uh, change them depending on the Jesus that we see in these stories, that we reformat it in and around him and his perspective on king and kingdom. And like every story that we're going to talk about, this one is an invitation to do so. The, the stories we're going to read today. Secondly, last week we talked about a really important concept that's foreign to us as uh, modern Western people, but was very clear and and in every reader uh, of the gospel, the early readers of the gospels, and and definitely every person that we're going to encounter in the gospel. And that is uh, that there's two kingdoms at work within our world. Um, and they're supernatural kingdoms. One is the kingdom of God, that Jesus is that king and he's bringing the kingdom of God in the, on the earth. And the word that's used to describe that when the kingdom touches down is shalom. And it's often translated peace in English. This is a Hebrew word, but I like the term cosmic flourishing. It paints a much bigger and greater picture of what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes. And Jesus is this kingdom. He's trying to bring this kingdom on earth. And that's what we're talking about and describing in this series. But there's also another kingdom at work, and it's the kingdom of darkness. And it's supernatural kingdom, and and it's both powered by and uh, uh, brings sin into the world. And sin breaks down all of the different um, relationships that we have, our relationships with ourselves, with each other, with God, and with our world. And it causes chaos. It breaks down shalom. Rather than cosmic flourishing, there's cosmic disorder and chaos. And uh, like I said, every person, every individual that we're going to meet in this story um, has this as they're part of their worldview. And even though we don't share it, it's important for us to remember that because it's going to shape every single story. If we want to meet the Jesus that is presented in front of us, we have to at least know that this is part of the framework that he's entering into. So in the Gospel of Mark, like I said, we introduced him uh, and and Mark introduced him in chapter one and then he sets Jesus out on the road. Jesus is going and doing things. Um, And uh, we saw him last week meeting a paralyzed man in a house And we're going to skip over about a chapter. We'll come back to some of these stories. We have some parables where Jesus does do a bunch of teaching. But we're going to skip ahead to chapter 4, to some more actions of Jesus, to see Jesus in action as he shows us what it looks like that he is the king and bringing the kingdom. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 4, verse 35. So please join me there in your Bibles. It starts, On that day, when the evening had come, he told them, Let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat. Uh, I try to read each passage very carefully. And this sentence stood out to me that they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat. And it sounds to me like if you've ever, um, you know, they, they didn't really want to bring Jesus. Um, they had to bring him because he was in the boat. It's almost like a confession. They just had seen Jesus like last week. They know that he can read the hearts and minds of people. And so they're saying to him, look, we wanted to go on like a, just a little sail, a quiet sail, and we know that you bring drama. We weren't going to bring you. We weren't going to tell you, to be honest, but you were in the boat. So 
your full disclosure, but you're, I guess you can come with us. Um, okay, sorry, let, that's an aside. Let's continue on. Verse, so they're in the boat together, and there were other boats with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the w- boat was already being swamped. And Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. When we think of the ocean, or the sea, or a lake, we have a picture of rest and serenity. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to the summer when we're able to, you know, bike over to Stanley Park, sit on the beach with an umbrella and some cold drinks and just enjoy the beauty that's there or head out to White Pine and do, uh, you know, a a hike around the lake and enjoy sitting at the beach and swimming in the lake. Um, And if it's going to be, if we have that plan and it's going to be a stormy day or not nice, we just go back to our homes. We stay inside. um, We make ourselves a chai latte. We wrap ourselves up in, you know, a raining fleece or raining champ tiger fleece blankets. And we look out the window and say, boy, I'm so glad I'm not out there. So we don't really venture out into those kind of storms or onto the ocean at that time. But in ancient times, although the sea was also a picture of beauty, it meant something else. Um, It was a food source. It was a market. It was a place of work and trade, and it was a transit system. So it was much more in their lives. They couldn't avoid the storms in the same way. They were much more privy to the forces of nature on their lives than we are as modern people. And because of this, the sea became a symbol of the unknown, the unpredictable, of chaos and destruction and a place of danger. You would have sent people out uh, onto the ocean, maybe to go fishing, and just never seen or heard from them again. And so it was one of these places uh, in, in our world, the, the sea was one of these places where this cosmic battle played out. The, the kingdom of darkness could come and turn the sea into just a, a place of chaos and brokenness. Tim Keller says it this way, if there's one thing that all ancient cultures believe together, if there's one consensus point, it was that the sea was uncontrollable to any power but God. So at this place, we roll our eyes. And we think, boy, these ancient people, they were probably nice, but man, are they so simple, you know? um, And it would be like if I, if we were ready to head to the beach um, and uh, I came over to your house and I said, hey, before we head to the beach, let's just do a little sacrifice in your kitchen because that way we'll make sure that we have a good day and we're not attacked by any leviathans uh, at the beach. And you might like, I don't know what you would do, call the hospital and send me over there. Um, it's just a, a very foreign concept to us to consider this as a place of spiritual battle. And uh, we're going to get pushed even farther uh, our, uh, in our um, worldview because the next story is about a man who's demon-possessed. That's what it says. And so we just don't share these worldviews. We, we might say if there's a storm, you know, it's just a force of nature. It's nothing spiritual. If someone is, uh, you know, showing the same signs as this demon-possessed person, they probably have a mental health issue. And uh, it makes it very hard for us to engage in the story because we don't share the assumptions that they have about the world. And so we need to address this if we're going to move ahead and understand uh, and be able to picture this Jesus that is brought into the story. What kind of king is he and what kind of kingdom does he bring? Now, we can't time machine our assumptions. We can't just send them back there and and share all the assumptions of of those people. We're modern people, and that's totally okay. We have our own assumptions about the world. So what we should do, and what this passage invites us to do, is to notice and suspend what is called our chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery is a great word coined by C.S. Lewis, and, and here's how he describes it. Chronological snobbery is the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account 
discredited. Whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. So we assume that we're at the pinnacle of history, that we know everything. And the the people that came before us who don't share those assumptions, uh, we just discredit them. We assume that they're just simple or extremely misguided. And this is a form of something we really hate in our culture called cultural imperialism. Wikipedia defines it this way, cultural imperialism in anthropology, sociology, and ethics is the imposition by one usually politically or economically dominant community of various aspects of its own culture onto another non-dominant community. This is a form of uh, cultural and intellectual colonialism, and we very much frown on that in our society. Yet something chronological snobbery is a way that we do that. We just do it through time. We look back at those people and we try to say, you don't know what you're talking about, but I and we do. Let me give you an example of this since we're just using a bunch of large words and definitions. I recently read a really interesting and good book called Why Fish Don't Exist, A Story of Lost Love and the Hidden Order of Life. It's written by a woman named Lulu Miller. She's a really great writer. Um, And she starts, it's two parallel stories going along together. She starts writing with her own story. She's a broken woman. She's a bit of a failure. And she's trying to make sense of her life to get some sort of hope and meaning. And she reads, she hears about a scientist named David Starr Jones. Uh, He lived uh, over 100 years ago, but he found and categorized different fish around the world, so many. Um, And uh, he was a brilliant man. And so he's categorized and gathered all these different species and shared them with the scientific community. He has them in his lab. And at one point in time, there's an earthquake that breaks all of the, it shatters all of the jars. They drop to the ground, the ether pours out, the fish are on the ground. And the worst part is that all the tags, all the names of the fishes and the way that he described them are lying in a mess on the floor. He had no clue which tag belongs to his fish. And it feels like all of his life's work um, is all for naught. But David Starr Jones doesn't give up. He gets up and uh, very quickly he starts to get back to work. He gets people to hose these fish off 24 hours a day. And he starts painstakingly putting these fish back in the ether. And, and uh, he takes a piece of thread and he actually ties the name tags. He figures out which name tags go with which fish and he painstakingly ties them back on. And this story captivates Lulu Miller. It's captivating to all of us, I think, of just this kind of a person with this amount of drive. In hockey, we might call it, or sports, we might call it stick-to-itiveness, that he just is unrelenting. And Lulu Miller is drawn to this. She wants it. Now, in the story, she presents herself as a very open-minded person, a person who's open to new ideas and challenges and new relationships. But the one place she won't be open to, to find answers and to find this kind uh, of drive is belief in God. In fact, she writes in her book that this is about how to have faith without having capital faith. And one moment stands out very particularly in her story about how, uh, about her, I would say, chronological snobbery. Uh, David Starr Jones, at the early points of his life, he goes to this island uh, to start off his career as a scientist. And the, and the person that he meets there that's running the island is, is also a brilliant scientist, but he's a deeply uh, religious person as well. And so Lulu Miller writes this, After reading about David's experience on Piccanese Island, I began to worry. If God was the light that lit his search through dark times, then he didn't have any more to teach me. Let's close that door in my life. Her chronological snobbery and cultural imperialism show in this moment. 
That if David Starr Jones understanding his drive to understand the work and to be a great scientist and to continue to keep going through the different barriers that he faces, if all of those things are powered by God, then she's not interested. And I think we're tempted to do the same thing, to have the same kind of cultural imperialism when we read Mark. We'll meet people who are physically healed when they encounter Jesus and we'll say, I, I want to be physically healed. Or we'll meet people who are uh, social, have social and mental problems and, and they're, they're healed from that. And we say, I, I, I want that too. Or people who are desperate for someone to see them, to touch them, to recognize their faith and give them hope. We say, I, I want all of those things. But if we were unable or unwilling to meet this king, we won't be able to meet this king and experience his kingdom unless we notice our tendency towards our own chronological snobbery. Well, only if we, unless we're able to uh, address that, we're going to be left with the same answers that Lulu Miller is left with in her book. This is what she finds on her quest. She says, this is the point. People don't matter, but we should live as if they did. Life has no purpose, but we should live as if it does. That's where she ends her story. But the invitation of the story of God is something different. It's to recognize our tendency towards chronological snobbery. All of us do this. So just to open ourselves up to recognize it. And there's so many wonderful scientific discoveries in our world. There's so much that we know that they don't. That's true. And our world is a great and wonderful place. But let's not be snobs about it. Let's be open to the fact that we also might have something to learn here. C.S. Lewis says, this is the way that we're able, here is how we can address our chronological snobbery that we all have. We're all engulfed in our moment in history. He says, every age has its own outlook. It's especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to make certain mistakes. We all therefore need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period. None of us can fully escape this blindness, but we shall certainly increase it and weaken our own guard against it if we only read modern books. We'll become increasingly chronological snobs if we don't listen to other cultures and other times and other people that disagree with us. So the only palliative is keep, to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. And this can only be done by reading old books, reading old stories. And that is, here's two reasons why we should be open to these ancient stories that we're about to read today, blowing the clean sea breeze of the century through our minds and assumptions. The first is this. Many scholars, both considerable, or, or, sorry, both conservative and liberal, would say these are written as if they are eyewitness testimony. The level of detail um, points to someone actually being there. Like in the passage we just saw, that Jesus is sleeping on a cushion. Why would anyone say that uh, unless they were there? Realistic fiction wasn't invented at this time. Also, the disciples who wrote this story are portrayed as faithless idiots in the story. Why would they portray it like that unless it actually happened? And secondly, storms like this, we might think, oh, this is just a mythological storm. It probably wasn't that big of a deal. They actually still happen on the Sea of Galilee today. One author that I was reading said, today, even today in parking lots on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee, they have warning signs that high winds can swamp cars that look like they're in relative safety. So, these stories are different than our worldview, but they're presented as eyewitness accounts in history. And so it may be hard to believe, and we can't completely suspend our assumptions, but there's a reason to believe that something happened here. And it's okay that it's hard to believe, but let's just for a few minutes stop with our chronological snobbery. Just maybe examine it for a minute to enter into this ancient story. Because the writer Mark is trying to say that there is actually a kingdom 
and a king that has an invitation not only to the people, the ancient people who are reading it long time ago, but to each one of us. Okay, with that said, let's continue on in our story. So, so they woke him up and said to him, this is Jesus, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Don't you care? We'll come back to this later. And then verse 39. So Jesus, he got up, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, silence, be still. So as we said, the sea was a malevolent force. Uh, as a malevolent force, it's a common theme at this time in ancient literature. It's an outpost of the kingdom of darkness. It's one of these battlegrounds that we show ourselves just to be pawns in the bigger story that's going on. But core to the belief of the Hebrew people is that their king, Yahweh, and his kingdom is stronger than the kingdom of darkness, even as played out on the ocean. And there are many stories in the Bible, in the Hebrew scriptures, of God showing his power over the sea, and even in sometimes using the sea as salvation. Not only is he Lord of the sea, but he can actually turn this malevolent thing into something for good. So here's two examples. Moses, uh, if you're familiar with the story, the people flee from Egypt, and Moses is just a spokesperson for God, and he has the staff, and so he holds it up, and the power of God splits the sea to save his people and then to drown the Egyptians who are chasing them down. Jonah, a prophet, um, is in a, a very similar situation to the story we see today. He's in a boat, he's asleep, there's a massive storm, the people wake him up. And then they say, so Jonah, you have sin on you. You're the reason for the storm. Remember, this malevolent force at work in the world. And so they throw him overboard and the storm is calm. They appease the dark forces. But Jesus doesn't do either of those things. He just speaks to the sea. He's not using something. He doesn't need to be thrown overboard. He just speaks. And by doing so, he is drawing on a theme that wouldn't be lost on most of the ancient hearers. Because in the Hebrew scripture, speaking to the sea had certain connotations. Listen, Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible. And God said, God spoke, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. It just happens because God says, and God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas and he saw that it was good. So many resonances within the story that we're understanding in the gospel of Mark, that this is our, the king making his kingdom, bringing shalom, it was good by separating and calling out the waters, that he is Lord even over this chaotic place. Job 38, if you're familiar with the story, Job has had some terrible things happen to him. His friends are trying to console them. They're kind of debating back and forth. And at the very end, God starts to speak to him. And here's what he says. Who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst from the womb, when I made the cloud its garments and total darkness its blanket? when I determined its boundaries and put its bars and doors in place, when I decided you may come this far, but no farther, your proud waves stop here. God is saying that he is the one who's the king over these things, that it's his voice. He declares it where the waves are allowed to go and stop, that this place we might not have any control over. God is control, has control. And then last one, last one, Psalm 89, verse 9. It says, you rule the raging of the seas. When its waves rise, you still them. That God is the one who is able to calm the storms, these things that are out of control in our life. And so Jesus, when he speaks, he's entering into the story. All these are hyperlinks to what he's doing. He's not just a teacher as the disciples addressed him. He's not just a prophet like Jonah. He's not also one carrying the sin. He's not, he's not responsible for it. But he's speaking as God himself, one who is over it. He quiets the voice of the sea with his own voice. He brings shalom and calm. And so what's the outcome? It says that the wind ceased and there was a great calm. So who is stronger? 
That's what this story is trying to tell us. Who is stronger? It's Jesus stilling the chaos and bringing shalom into the world. The kingdom of light is stronger than the kingdom of darkness because the king is here and he is stronger. This is the king restoring, a picture of him restoring his kingdom on earth, reigning and ruling. So then Jesus turns to the disciples, verse 40, he says, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified, and they asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. One of the characteristic things in the Gospel of Mark is that he gives us a bird's eye view. We see everything. The disciples don't see everything, but we get to. And so we know the answer, who is this Jesus? We've been told in the first chapter. The disciples sort of know, but they don't know. And so the next story will help to give us this answer. Who is Jesus? And expose some new things about him. So let's keep reading chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So they're now, uh, they came to the other side of the sea, to the region of Gennesaret. Now this place is into Gentile territory. That's what we need to see. The Gentiles were uh, not Jews. It's anyone who's not Jewish. And so they're unclean people to the Jews. They're other than them. Verse 2. And as soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit... Now, he's an unclean man, or a, a man with an unclean spirit, and we'll get more to this in a minute, what that means. But just notice for now, he's in an unclean place. He's got unclean spirit. And he came out of the tombs and met him. Now, the tombs are an unclean place, maybe the most unclean place. It's the place of the dead, of dead bodies. So unclean, unclean, unclean. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him, not even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, here is another place where we want to shake our head at these old-timey people for their antiquated views on mental health. Um, you know, this person is obviously manic or bipolar or maybe something different. Um, probably not demon-possessed. That's the wrong, when we put that kind of title on him, we do the wrong things to him like they did, outcast him. And that's natural. But as I talked about, if that's our reaction, which is normal, then it's also an invitation for us to just check our chronological snobbery. So let's zoom out for a bit and, and get a biblical picture of what it says uh, about mental health very quickly. And I'm going to quote an old English preacher from the 17th century named Richard Baxter. And I'm specifically going all the way back because he would not have had our modern categories of mental health. Um, you know, there's no DSM for him, no, uh, no way to categorize the things that he said. So he, he preached a sermon called The Cure of Melancholy and Overmuch Sorrow, um, which we would probably call today depression. And Baxter says that according to the Bible, depression could have at least four different bases. Again, this is all according to the Bible. First of all, there could be a physiological basis for our depression. There's something in, in us, in our bodies. So we need nutrition, me medicine, or rest. Secondly, there could be a moral basis for our depression, which has to do with guilt and shame that we're carrying. And so we need confession, forgiveness, and grace. Thirdly, there could be a mental or psychological basis for our depression. So we might be extremely cast down, to use the language of the Bible, or extremely discouraged, weary, and worn out emotionally. And in that case, what we need is love and support and rest and talk and community. And fourthly, there may be a spiritual root to our depression, as we see in this passage, in which case we need the power of God to liberate us, his kingdom to come into our world. Now, why does this matter? First of all, again, I point out that this is done before, this is done before we had our modern categories. 
But why does this all matter? Listen to what Tim Keller says about these categories. Do you not see that some worldviews are more materialistic than the Bible? Therefore, the answer is always to take a pill. Some worldviews are also more psychological than the Bible, and the answer is always talk and acceptance. These are probably the two primary reviews that are in our world today, Medicaid or counseling. Some worldviews are also much more pharisaical and moralistic than that of the Bible. Therefore, if there's something wrong in your life, you just need to do the right thing. You need to obey and you need to confess your sins and do it right. Again, this might be a place where our chronological snobbery thinks that's antiquated, but there are lots of worldviews that like that in the world. And many worldviews are more superstitious than the Bible. They see demons everywhere. They see the devil behind everything that's wrong with them, and there's a demon that has to be cast out. Now, it's important to show, or just in, in this example, to say that uh, in the, so far in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen people with all sorts of different physical, and we'll see mental and uh, issues, and then even death itself. And this is the first time where the spiritual nature of the problem is brought to the foreground to say that this is the primary problem. We won't see that in every story. So even in the Gospel of Mark, it doesn't make the spiritual uh, basis always the one that has to be there for something like mental health. Keller continues, but the Bible itself is far more nuanced, far more multidimensional, and far less reductionistic than any of these other worldviews we have. It refuses to ever reduce our problems to a single plane, and it never has a default mode saying it must be physiological, it must be mental, it must be moral, or it must be spiritual. Instead, what the Bible says is these four elements we just mentioned are interlocking, It could actually work in a certain person's life in all sorts of different forms and ways of relating and levels. Therefore, there is no template for figuring out on any one individual level because evil and misery and problems and difficulties in our life are complex. And this passage in the Bible would agree. Okay, so that's what's going on in in this guy. And they point out that he is demon-possessed. So when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And we just see the desperation in this man. And he's just crying out to Jesus. But there's also a deep sense of irony here. Remember in the previous story that we just read, the disciples, these men who are steeped in biblical tradition and Jewish history, uh, that they know they have followed Jesus for a while, that they, uh, as far as we know, aren't possessed by demons. And in verse uh, chapter 441, they ask the question, who are you, Jesus? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And here we have the answer that he is Jesus, Yahweh saves, the son of the most high. This was a term that was used for people who were foreigners, not Jewish, to address their God. And he calls him the son of the most high God. And here's the answer, uh, uh, given by a foreigner, someone who is out of his mind and has never seen Jesus before, not familiar at all with the stories. He comes and he calls Jesus by his name. He reveals him to us. And there's two things I want us to notice here. That the kingdom of God is bigger than any cultural or physical boundaries. That's one of the things we're supposed to see. Jesus is on the other side of the sea. He's not in Jewish territory. And he's saying that this place is mine too. I have people that are here that are going to recognize me. And I am their God. My kingdom extends beyond those small borders. And he's also showing once again that his kingdom is greater than the kingdom of darkness. The demons that are speaking here through this man Um, they understand their relation to God as the king of the kingdom of light. 
They are in opposition with one another, but they are deeply afraid. They know they are less powerful than this king, that God's kingdom and he as the king is more powerful than their kingdom. So verse nine, they ask, what is he? Jesus asked them, sorry, what is your name? They say, my name is Legion. He answered them because we are many. And he begged them earnestly not to send them out of the region. So here it comes. How strong is this King Jesus? We've seen that he's strong enough to take on these natural forces of a storm, but he's he's strong enough maybe to stop one foot soldier. But how about a legion of them, thousands of them? What's he going to do? So verse 11, a large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside and the demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. Now there's a lot we could say about this passage and I want to point out if we have any like PETA people that I'm sorry last week talked about a rare stake today about the death of thousands of pigs. Not planned. I'm not anti-animal. Or, yeah, anti-animal. Um, and there's lots of controversy. If you have questions, you can email me and I'd love to work through this together with you. The point of what I want to, or what I want to point out through this passage is that the intention of the dark forces, the kingdom of darkness, and its destruction. The ultimate outcome of what they do is death and destruction. We see that in the early parts of this passage in the man. And he's in inner turmoil. He's been driven away from everyone. He's hurting himself and he's hurting other people. It was killing him. What they were doing to him was killing him slowly. And this is the ultimate outcome that we see very drastically uh, in this in the pigs. They're drove out from the man into the pigs and there's instant death, which is always the outcome of the kingdom of darkness. Verse 14 continues, the men who tended these pigs. Imagine that you're just there tending these pigs. All of a sudden they just en masse take off, jump off a cliff. They report it back to the town and the countryside and the people went to see what had happened. So they're all there now. And they came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon possessed sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And here again is a picture of, the, of who Jesus is as king we just saw, but here's a picture of the kingdom that he brings. He's bringing life. He's restoring this man to himself. He's bringing shalom. Verse 16, those who had seen what happened described uh, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. So now imagine that. You see someone restored, all these people around. You hear the story. What will you do? What will we do with this kind of Jesus? And I want to close with the three reactions that we see in the passage. The first reaction is the people of Gennesaret who knew the demon-possessed man. Verse 15 and verse 17, it says, They were afraid. And then they begged, they began to beg him to leave their region. They begged Jesus to leave. The irony, the the demons actually say, hey, don't send us away. Let us stay here. Um, The people come and they ask Jesus to leave. Why? Well, they get something right about Jesus and then they get something wrong about Jesus. Here's what they get right. Jesus, if he is this kind of king and he has this kind of power, then he is completely uncontrollable. Here's what one commentator says. They are more comfortable with the malevolent forces that take captive human beings and destroy animals, and as we saw, uh, bring storms onto seas than they are with the one who can expel them. They can cope with the odd demon-possessed wild man who terrorizes the neighborhood with random acts of violence, but they want to keep someone with Jesus' power at lake's length. This kind of power that we see in Jesus, the power to cast out a legion of demons, to stop a storm with a word, is something you cannot control. 
And they know this. You can't invite Jesus into your life to be a butler. He'll only be happy with being the king. That's who he is. And they get that. They understand when they see his power in action that this is who he is, that they can't control him. What about you and me? Do we understand that this is the kind of Jesus that is the king of the world? And do we treat him like that? So that's what they get right. But here's what they get wrong. And here's why they asked him to leave. They think, you know, if Jesus isn't here, if he gets out of our region, then we're okay. We can keep control. Yeah, there's these random flare-ups that we see, but we'll just keep control. Things are fine the way they are. But the deep irony here is that in this, this whole story is trying to teach us that you don't have control. Life will spin out of control. That is the whole point of both of these stories. You don't plan a storm. They just happen. They're uncontrollable by nature. They're happening by nature, we would say in our world. You don't plan a mental breakdown. That's not how it works. It's like, yeah, I didn't have anything in February, so I just thought it would be a good time. That's not the way that it works. It's uncontrollable. That's exactly how it works. And Jesus um, is the king of everything everywhere. So you can't actually expel him. He may leave your region, but he's the cosmic king who brings a cosmic kingdom over everywhere. That's why he's on the other side of the lake to show that that's true. His power works there as well, even though they ask him to leave. So they won't be able to avoid him. I love the way that Abraham Kuyper says this. It's a quote I've used many times. It's very meaningful in my own life. He says, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all his. You can't escape this kind of king. So life will spin out of control and Jesus is the king of everywhere. That's what they get wrong. And so this passage screams out to the town people and it screams out to you and to me and it screams out to people like Lulu Miller. Take Jesus as king now. He is here. You can't uh, retain control of your world. It's impossible. Things will come. And you won't be able to control King Jesus. If you do that, you'll always be dissatisfied with his presence in your life. But Jesus asks, invites us into his kingdom. He says, take my hand. So you don't have to ride in the boat alone through the storms. So you don't have to wander the tombs outcast in life. Just take the crown off of your own head and put it on to Jesus because he's the rightful king. He's the only one who can calm the storms and quell the darkness in our life and in our world. Let's look at the second group of people, verse 18, or the person. It says, as Jesus was getting in the boat, so they asked him to leave, and Jesus started to leave. He gets in the boat, and the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus, let me hang out with you. And who wouldn't want to stick around? Imagine that. His whole life, he's been outcast. Jesus doesn't uh, go distant, but comes close to him. He greets him. He saves him. He's like, can I stick around? And here's the interesting thing. In this passage, we see a lot of different requests from people. The disciples on the boat, they make a request. Jesus, do something. Don't you care? Jesus grants their request. Stop the storm. The demons make a request. Don't send us out of this area, but send us into the pig. Jesus grants their request. The townspeople make a request. Jesus, get out of here. Jesus grants it and he leaves. So we're set up to think Jesus will obviously grant this man's request. What does Jesus say? Verse 19. Jesus did not let him. He didn't say, he said, you can't come with me, but he told him, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus denies the man's request. This guy had a lot of issues. You know, he had a couple thousand demons in him. I don't know how many problems you have, but I'm assuming maybe a few less, you know, uh, somewhere between Jay-Z and his 99 problems and, and uh, this man. And Jesus comes to this man and he says, I'm king overall. The kind of king I am, I'm just with a word, I can get rid of those. And I see you 
and I restore you. I take care of this, uh, the problem of the, sin, the power of darkness in your direct life. But God's kingdom, like I said, is bigger than just our personal sins. We have to continue to wrestle with that as we look at the gospel of Mark. And that's what this passage is trying to tell us. God is about restoring shalom. His plan is, is, includes us, but it's just so much bigger. It's so much bigger. And in this story, God's plan isn't to tuck this healing that he's done away in this man's life, to just join for his own quiet time and education. But he actually has worldwide implications, relational implications for this man's life. He says, I am sending you home. I want to restore you to your family and your people. That is the outcome of what I've done in your life. Go and be restored. Bring shalom there. Bring the good news to them. Bring me there. Allow me to be their king and extend the kingdom in that place. And just like we saw last week, Jesus' power over sin and his healing hands are not in opposition to one another. And so is the same here. Jesus' power over sin in this man's life and relational wholeness and healing are not in, in opposed to each other. They're not an either or, they're a yes and. Both of them are happening because this is our king and this is the kind of kingdom he brings. Jesus comes to save from sin and the effects of sin in our world. But he also comes to restore to bring the kingdom and to start bringing a life of shalom, this cosmic flourishing into our world. In closing, the last group I want to address is a group um, that we've kind of looked over in this story or a way that we've looked it over. You know, um, maybe it's my personality, but I kind of dissect these stories and I, and I break them down uh, into their parts. But there's an intensely human element to what's happening in this story. There's people in the boat that are fearing for their lives and they're just crying out, Jesus, Jesus, where are you? Help us, save us, do something, don't you care? And there's a demon-possessed man and we just see uh, the humanity and what he does, that he just runs to Jesus from a a long way off. He throws himself down at his feet. He cries out in in a loud voice. He's so needy that he's just unembarrassed and unencumbered as he comes to Jesus. He's a desperate person and these are the cries of deep desperation, both of these people. They're caught up in the storms of life. They're enfolded in deep darkness that they can't find their way out of. And they're just crying out to Jesus. And I know that that doesn't necessarily describe all of us that are listening. But I I know that it, it does describe a few. You're in the biggest storm of your life. And you're crying out and maybe you just feel like, Jesus, I don't know where he is. He must be asleep if he's here. Or you feel like you're in a really bad mental space, just darkness that you've never been in before and you're isolated. You're close, you feel like you're close to dying maybe. And I think these stories address each of us too that are in that space. There's three quick things as we close. These stories are an invitation to go to Jesus, to cry out to him, to run to him like the man did, to go beneath and wake him up that he is with us in our times of need and brokenness and he actually wants us to approach him like that, to go to him, to have faith that Jesus is the king over all the storms and all the darkness. That's what these two uh, examples are supposed to show us, that no matter the storms and the darkness that we face in our life, Jesus is king over all of them and we can put our hope in him, even in the midst of the storm, that all of us are included in these stories and all of our storms and our darkness are as well. And then finally, to know that he is here. He is here with you. The story, like I said, is written as eyewitness ancient testimony that Jesus did do something on that sea. He did do something for this actual man. And the promise and the hope of Jesus is that he will do something. He will restore everything. 
But the promise is also for us now that he's with us in the boat. Whatever we find ourselves with in our situation in life, that he's right there with us. And you know, the early church actually used this picture of um, Jesus in the boat with his disciples as their logo, something like their logo, because they said that's what represented their lives as Christians. That we feel like we're in a big storm on a boat together. And sometimes it feels like Jesus is sleeping. But the constant reminder for them was that he is with them. And we can go, we can cry out to him, we can have faith in him with the hope that he has done something in the past with that reminder as a logo, with the hope of the future, crying out to him and having faith in the present. As we respond, we invite you to uh, join us. We're going to sing some songs together where we worship God. Um, encourage you to go and give. Uh, we encourage you to, to, to use the elements and take communion together if you have it at home. And if you need prayer, like I said, this at the end of the story especially, this is an intensely personal story. And maybe you're feeling like that. Reach out. Cry out to Jesus, but cry out to us in your community. Just text somebody and say, hey, this is what's going on with me. We, we would love to pray with you. We'd love to be in the boat with you together and to help you have faith in Jesus. So I'm gonna just close in prayer and invite you to do each of those things. I'll close with the, the end of the passage, verse 20. It says that he went out and began to proclaim how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. God, we see amazing things in this passage. We see you as the king. Uh, ask for forgiveness for the ways that I and, and all of us try to make you more of our assistant than the king. We ask that you would take your rightful place and that we would uh, raise you up, that we would stand in a place of amazement. Maybe um, that, that would change our direction of our lives today. We thank you for the kingdom that you bring to, that you invite people into it, just like you sent this man out, would you send us out too? Would you meet us in the places that we are, the storms that we're at? We give us the words to say and the actions to do that point to you and your kingdom in our world. Thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.